Barry tells me that it's normal to speak for two hours on a Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> fear not, fear not. We will uh, not be here that long. Um, but this morning I'd like to share something with you that is very much, or has been born very much out of personal experience for me over the past year or so. Uh, something I've been really challenged by and I feel I'm still being uh, challenged on even now. And it, particularly that's my view uh, and our view of non-Christians. I don't think I've ever been one to be particularly judgmental, um, at least outwardly. And I try and act consistently to people regardless of who they are. But I've just felt super challenged on this, this topic. And if I had to summarize this in one word, it's what I have on screen. It's grace. You know, God's grace to us is the best gift that any of us could ever have. It is the solution to the biggest problem there has ever been. And that is that God hates sin, but he loves us. But he has to be a just and fair God as well. And the only way that all of those things can be met is by Jesus dying on the cross in our place so that we could be forgiven. So to expand on that, the word of grace. I would say it's important that we understand that God's grace is for everyone. And because of that, we cannot give up on anyone. As I speak, I might be a little bit direct this morning, and that's intentional for two reasons. First of all, I need to hear this. I really do. Even while studying ahead of teaching today, I've been challenged yet further. But secondly, you need to hear this as well. Maybe you've perfectly grasped this topic of grace, and I'd be so happy to hear if that's the case. But just maybe you haven't yet fully grasped it in the way that I haven't fully grasped it yet either. So we all need to understand more of God's grace. Recently, uh, when teaching back at home, I shared something I'd heard about Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher. He um, he once had an elderly woman come up to him after he'd been uh, speaking. And she said to him, what you said hurt me. And he said, my dear lady, I didn't mean to hurt you. I meant to kill you. Spurgeon was always one for being direct. And the point that he was making is we need to be at the end of ourselves, that We don't try and hang on to our preferences, our way of thinking, but we're open to what the Bible says to us, to what God says to us. So Spurgeon, as direct as ever there, um, I may not be as direct as that, but uh, if I am direct in any way, it is intentional this morning. So where I'll begin is with a, a common statement or thought that I've both said and thought myself, and I've heard many others say as well, and that is this phrase, they would make a great Christian. It's familiar. You know, for me, that's uh, Mo and Abdul in the curry house back in Deal. You know, they're really lovely people, and it's so easy to think, they'd make a great Christian. For you, I don't know who that is, but I'm sure you've thought this of people as well. And the intent behind saying or thinking this is usually that you see some degree of good or Christian behavior in a person. Therefore, we think that if only they knew Jesus, they would make a great Christian. Really. Is that really the case? I know what I've meant, and I know what I think you've meant in saying that, if you've said those words or thought those words. But I've got to the point, I never want to say that again. And why is that? Because I firmly believe it is not biblical to say that. Whether someone makes a good Christian or not, as compared to Christian behavior as set out in the Bible, has little or nothing to do with their current state or their past behavior. Rather, it has everything to do with Jesus saving them and only then how much of their lives they're willing to surrender to Jesus. The more time that we are willing to spend with Jesus and with Christians and at church, 
the more sin seems sinful to us and the more we feel convicted about our own sin. Therefore, the more we realise how abhorrent some of the things are that go on in this world. And for sure, we have the extreme cases. You know, the events in Belgium recently are a good reminder of how abhorrent some things in this world can be. But many other things we, we look at and we, we balk at and we go, wow. You know, we don't like what we see. And as we look at that, the more we realize why God tells us to do some things, showing love for one, and why not to do some things. And that's good. That is a good thing. However, where we can have difficulty then is our approach to those that don't know Jesus as their savior, which sadly accounts for most of the people in this country. The risk is that we think that some people would make better Christians than others. Or worse still, we give up on some thinking that there is no way that they would ever become a Christian. And maybe we think, oh, they're just not interested, or their lifestyle is just so unbiblical, or they love their sin too much. Because of course, that would never be the case with us, would it? I want to share with you some biblical examples that may shake up our thinking, our opinion on this. The first of those is Paul. Paul is a man who persecuted Christians. Men and women lost their lives, lost their families to the efforts of this man. He recalls in Acts chapter 24, he says, And I persecuted this way, that's Christianity, unto the death, binding and delivering to prisons both men and women. And later in this same chapter, he'll go on to recall how he was consenting to Stephen's death. This man, Paul, became one of the greatest Christians in history. There is few that the Lord has used to the extent that he used Paul to tell others about Jesus, to preach and teach the truth, and to lovingly correct and to encourage the church. Yet if you or I looked at him when he was known as Saul and he was persecuting Christians, how many of us would have said, he'd make a great Christian? Indeed, such was Paul's reputation that when God told Ananias to meet Paul in Damascus, Ananias said, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. In here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on your name. Ananias was fearful of Paul because of his reputation. Yet this man really did make a great Christian. Our next example is Rahab. In Joshua chapters 2 and 6, we're told of this young girl, this character. We're told that she was a harlot, that is a prostitute. You know, sure, here we're talking of someone who lived prior to the cross, but the parallel is there. She was saved out of Jericho. And Paul makes mention of her in Hebrews chapter 11 as an example of faith. He says, by faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. That is, she did believe. She put her trust in the one true God. When was the last time that you thought a prostitute would make a good Christian? What about Abraham? You know, surely he's the best example of faith that we have in the Bible. The Jews hold him in the highest regard, and Christians do too, even despite the mistakes that he made in his life. But what does Joshua say of him? Well, in Joshua 24, we read this. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. At the very least, Abraham was living in an idolatrous family in an idolatrous culture. 
And from this verse, there's some reason to believe he may have even been caught up in idolatry himself. Certainly, I think we can all be guilty of looking at our culture today and thinking, or really not thinking, that those in the middle of it would make great Christians. But look at where God called Abraham from. A timely example being Easter is the thief on the cross. Now, we tend to think of this man with warm feelings. After all, he recognized that Jesus had done no wrong. And he told the other thief so. And Jesus said those famous words to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Yet, why was that man on the cross in the first place? Matthew 27, we read, there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right, the other on the left. This man was a thief. And under Roman law, was due to be crucified. He was a criminal. Yet how many people have been given hope by that man? How many people have been witnessed to by his words? He wasn't even baptized, but God has used him. And what of Zacchaeus? You know, this man was not popular, and I guess paying taxes is not something that fills our hearts with joy even today. But far from a carefully administered system, at the time, tax collectors in that day were able to get away with taking much more than they should. And when Jesus said that he was going to Zacchaeus' house, this is the reaction he received. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was going to be the guest with a man that is a sinner. What a shocker. I have a question for you. As you and I look at this account from Luke, do you see the mistake that the crowd make? Yet what would you think if someone in your church went to the pub with a non-Christian friend? You know, I'm not suggesting that you go out on a pub call or start getting drunk or even suggesting you drink at all. But does our personal conviction, however right it may be, cause us to raise eyebrows when we shouldn't? Or worse, does it stop us from having a great opportunity to witness to a non-Christian friend or colleague? The woman at the well. We know from what Jesus says about her that she had been married five times and now was in a relationship with someone who was not her husband. Would you take the time to talk to someone like this? Because Jesus did. And the result was that she became an evangelist to many in her city. We read it in John chapter 4. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him. That's on Jesus for the saying of the woman. And we hear later that they came out and followed Jesus. As we look at these examples, we should all be challenged. There is no one, no one that is beyond saving, no one beyond God's grace. And more than that, look at the impact of the lives of these people on others. Saul the murderer became Paul the apostle. Rahab the prostitute was noted in the Bible for her faith. Abraham, who lived in an idolatrous family in an idolatrous culture, is known as the best example of faith in the Bible. The thief, the convicted criminal on the cross, has had an impact on thousands, if not millions. Zacchaeus' life completely changed. He said, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. There was actions that accompanied his belief. The woman at the well with five failed marriages and a wrong relationship now led many to following Jesus. These people made great Christians. These people. There's yet more examples even from today of those that we would not naturally perhaps look at and say, they'd make great Christians. 
Joe Foch, who's the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia, grew up and was throwing his life away with drugs and substance abuse. He is now one of the best Bible teachers that I've ever heard and pastors a church of roughly 8,000 people. God has taken his life, completely transformed him, but he describes himself as an ex-druggie. That is his background. John Schlitt, a man I, I very much admire, has had a huge impact in my life, was a lead vocalist for the Christian band Petra. But prior to that, he was singing for a secular band, and they fired him for being so out of control. His life descended into drink first, and then into cocaine. His life was being thrown away until he came to know the Lord. But those points prior to him coming to know the Lord, how many people looked at him and said, he'd make a great Christian. Because man, this guy has had an impact on my life through the words that he has sung. A couple of examples I've come across recently. Um, some of you may have heard of a secular band called Korn. Very, very heavy uh, metal band. The lead guitarist from that band, Brian Welsh, known as Brian Head Welsh, was messed up beyond belief. He was into crystal meth. He was rarely sober for more than a couple of hours. Recently saw his testimony video on the I Am Second site. I'd really encourage you to look at that if you've not before. But this man, through one person sharing scripture with him and then inviting him to church a few weeks later, came to know the Lord. His life has completely turned around and now he is speaking openly about his faith to thousands who may have not ever listened to anyone else. There's a little bit of a theme here with the music, but there's another Christian band that I uh, grew up listening to called Striper. Um, their lead guitarist, um, Oz Fox, a uh, great Christian guy, um, he married someone uh, in, I think, 2009 um, and her background before she was a Christian was as a prostitute. Her testimony is also on that site, I Am Second. I think it's IamSecond.com. Again, encourage you to look at it. It's heart-wrenching hearing what she went through, through the abuse that she went through, through her horrid, horrid life as a prostitute, through, again, turning to cocaine, ending up in hospital. Doctors amazed that she wasn't dead. She now has a ministry witnessing to prostitutes in Las Vegas. I set up safe houses for them, to escape to. Again, who would have looked at her and said, she'd make a great Christian? But she has. And it's not because of what she's done, it's because of what God has done. You know, it's incredible how God has not only saved these individuals eternally, but has so dramatically turned around their lives. Their testimonies are amazing, and we can easily see God's grace at work in those people. Now, of course, there's the risk that if you've grown up with a fairly stable life, maybe in a stable home or even a Christian home, before becoming a Christian yourself, you may think, well, do I really need a testimony as powerful as that? Because it feels like my testimony isn't as amazing in comparison to. Well, no, you already do have a testimony that is as powerful because you needed Jesus as your saviour just as much as those folks I've just mentioned. You needed God's grace too. For sure it is better if we can live our lives without falling in a major way. You know, we have great examples in the word of Joseph and Daniel, people of whom no sin is recorded. That doesn't mean that they didn't sin, but they lived their lives rightly before the Lord and they changed the world. God changed the world through them. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think 
Firstly, we've got to let go of the idea that a particular person would make a great Christian. Because it has nothing to do with someone's current state or their background or history. And I'd like to share just a few examples of those who have done this before, who have said, who have not said, well, only some people would make great Christians. They've looked at others and despite the outward appearance, they've said, I'm going to take the Lord to them. First of those is Chuck Smith. I'm an admirer of this man for someone who, even in the way he dressed to his very last days, was not someone who you would associate with hippies. But he went to the, the hippies of California in the 60s and 70s and took the Lord to them. He didn't even initially want to. It was his wife, Kay, that had the burden for them. But he went to these people who were so disenfranchised with the, the government, with society, that they had just abandoned all. Abandoned all morals, all standards. But he was faithful to take the word of God to them. You know, and he was so passionate about that, that one story that always makes me smile was when Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa first built a new large building. They'd put a carpet down, got everything ready. And some folks said, hang on, how can you let the hippies walk in here with their bare feet or their sandals? You know, we've just had a new carpet put down. He said, well, let's take the carpet up. The carpet is not the important thing. You know, he had a great heart for these people. Others have given even more. They've given their lives for sharing with people that the world would look at and go, there's no hope. Five people by the names of Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Roger Uderian, Pete Fleming and Nate Saint went out to the Orca Indians to witness to them. This tribe were even known previously as the Savages. They killed a number of Shell Oil Company's workers as they had tried exploring in that area, known as the Savages. And these men went there to take the gospel to them. They lost their lives for it. But through the work that they started, even some of their wives and others that followed went and witnessed these people and led them to know the Lord. Their lives completely turned around. Incredible stories of how we don't, or how we shouldn't just look at the outside and and think there's no hope. That we shouldn't just look at people and think they'd make great Christians and we try and work on them. Maybe it's a little harder to picture situations close to home because we hear of those great stories and think that's amazing. You know, but I'm not a missionary going to the Orca Indians. Well, another story that, that hit home to me was an account I heard of a girl at university who was coming home drunk every night, her life really starting to get out of control. And just one girl who lived across the hallway from her would help her when she got back to her room every night to get back into bed to make sure she was in safely without condemning her. But rather started praying for this girl and then got a church praying. And then got her friends, I think it was another six churches locally, uh, got involved praying for this girl. And eventually this girl came to know the Lord. And the way that happened was this girl eventually asked, why are you doing this? Why are you helping me? And that paved the way for an open door to be able to share the gospel to her. Now, who do we know in our lives that we need to show love and care to? Another question is, what do these folks who reached out to all those who needed Jesus have in common? That is, they realized again that no one is beyond saving. No one. We read in 1 John chapter 1, and he, that is Jesus, is the propitiation, that's the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is, Jesus died for all. 
That includes you, that includes I, and everyone that we know and everyone that we will ever meet. And what's more, God wants everyone to be saved. We read in Second Peter, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is long-suffering. He is patient. His desire is that all would come to repentance, that all would put their faith in Jesus. We know that not all will accept, but God's desire, his heart, is that all would. And so that has to be our heart too. The challenge can come in that we see the sin in someone's life and we walk away. But did you not need God's grace any less? Did I not need God's grace any less? You know, we are all in need of God's grace. Rabbi Zachariah said, well, it was not the volume of sin that sent Christ to the cross. It was the fact of sin. That is, that any sin existing was the reason that Jesus had to die. You know, we don't need a saviour more the more we sin. Rather, we become more aware of our need, but from the moment we sin at all, we need a saviour. This in no way should trivialise our view of sin. But again, you need Jesus just as much as the men and women that are locked up in the prisons in this country today for murder. We all need Jesus just as much. Barry and I were once at a friend's church where the minister suggested that we're on some sort of scale. And if we were to rank ourselves from zero to a hundred, then... You know, a murderer might be around the, the 10, 10% mark. The example he, he then gave, um, I wouldn't have, but he gave the example of Mother Teresa, um, being around the 80 to 90% mark was how he ranked her. And he said, maybe we're all somewhere in the middle. And he then said, Jesus makes up the rest. At that point, Barry and I, I remember vividly, looked at each other, just in disbelief. Disbelief that a church minister would say that because it is totally unbiblical. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, and I smiled when this was read uh, earlier this morning. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That means we cannot bring anything to the table. We cannot bring anything to our salvation. We are not saved partly through works, through the things that we do, and partly by God's grace. It is entirely by God's grace that we are saved. So let's consider another example. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 8. We'll read a a few verses from here. Uh, So John chapter 8 and verse 1. We read, Jesus went up unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us, saying that such should be stoned, but what say you? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard from them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, Let him first cast a stone at her. And as he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. 
and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't say that this woman is sinless. In fact, he tells her to go and sin no more. But he calls out the attitude of the Pharisees for thinking of themselves above this woman, for thinking that somehow they were better, that they were not sinners even. Paul has this to say in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. As such were some of you. You Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. Corinth perhaps being the closest example we have today of a society that had gone off the rails. It wasn't a compliment to call someone a Corinthian. Paul writing to the church here says, look, as such were some of you. Don't forget where you have come from, that God has saved each of you. A sinner, ultimately, is someone who has disobeyed God's commands. And last time I checked, that included you and I. So, do we spend time with the unsaved, with those that are not Christians? Well, we can't get away from them completely, can we? And Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 5 that we shouldn't even try. He says, I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. Basically, if you want to get away from people who are sinners, you have to get off this planet. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be called a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one not to eat. So Paul is warning not to spend time with those with this behavior who are in the church, those that are called a brother. And he goes on to say, for what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do you not judge them that are within? But them that without God judges, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So Paul is addressing what is happening in the church here. But he's saying you don't need to be judging those outside the church. It doesn't mean that sin is not sin. That is certainly what I'm, I'm not saying. You know, sin is the reason that we all need a saviour. And we cannot let it, though, be a barrier to us speaking to those who are unsaved. God is everyone's judge, not you and I. Jesus came for sinners. Now, of course, we should choose our friends carefully. That's wise. That's important to do. But we should love everyone. And that means being accessible to them. And our example, as it should be, is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, we read, And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at me in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came, sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eat your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go you and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners 
to repentance. So important is this account that it's also recorded in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. Friends, we've got to get close enough to the unsaved to be able to speak to them. That doesn't mean compromise. It doesn't mean that we don't take care to avoid the appearance of evil as the Bible instructs us to. But we don't look down on anyone for their sin, for we are all sinners in need of a saviour. It means we don't give up on anyone. Jesus, friend of sinners, isn't just a great song. It's a fact. And that has to mean also those that have wronged us or wronged those that we love. Just like for a moment to turn to Luke 15. Um, I'm not going to put this portion up on screen. I actually would like to read the the whole chapter. It's um, not that long. Luke 15 says, Then drew near to him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Jesus is saying here what value there is on a single soul. On a single soul. Carries on in verse 8. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and her neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Jesus again just giving the idea of preciousness here, how precious each and every person is. He says, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. And he divided to them his living. And not many days after, the young, younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him, uh, sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have uh, would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave to him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no more worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring here the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now the elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he said to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother 
is come, and your father has killed the fatty calf because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry because he would not go in, or, or, or rather Anne would not go in. Therefore his father came out and entreated him. And he, answering, said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve you, neither transgressed I at any time your commandment, and yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this your son was come, which has devoured your living with harlots, you have killed for him the fatty calf. And he said to him, Son, you are ever with me, and all that I have is yours. It was meet, that means it's fitting that we should make merry and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. This world is filled with millions of lost people. You know, we often read that story of the prodigal son in the context of backsliders, of those who maybe have grown up in church, fallen away, and we long for them to come back to know the Lord. You know, that in itself is a whole other topic. But here Jesus is speaking of all sinners. All of those that are lost and need saving. Everyone in this world. Something I'm realizing more and more as I look around at those around me in my life is that we are all broken. All of us. We all need a savior desperately. We all need Jesus. You and I have to remember the grace and the love that God has shown to us. We have to live our lives in response to that. But we need to be willing to share the good news of what Jesus has done with those around us. You know, it's so easy, again, just to look at sin in someone's life and not be thinking, oh, they'd make a great Christian. You know, but it is not about their current state is not about their past. It is about where God will take them, what he will do with them when he saves them. You know, I think a good principle for us is we should pray for people more than we criticize them. I think that's a really important principle. Pray for people more than you criticize them. You know, that's especially true of those that have wronged us or wronged those that we love. You know, we are not a higher authority than God. You know, we can't say, well, that person's not deserving of forgiveness. Wrong. Jesus thought so. He died on the cross for them. And as hard as that is, and believe me, I know that is hard. I know that is hard. But we have to forgive and we have to pray for people. And I think it's a good mark of maturity in our lives as a Christian when we can look at someone who's wronged us or wronged those that we love and we can pray for them. That is a good mark of Christian maturity. Don't give up on anyone. You know, we must be patient with sinners, with those that need Jesus. And that is everyone. And the reason we should be patient, because God is. Paul made this clear to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And he carries on and says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So what is Paul saying there? 
where he's explaining his background, how he persecuted the church. But he says it is about God's grace and patience toward him. And therefore, seeing God's patience towards Paul, that is the example for us all to follow, so that we have patience and long-suffering to all those around us who sin. Because everyone does. And we all do too. We must have patience. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't stand up for biblical truth. It doesn't mean that we don't stand up for biblical moral principles. And there surely is a need for that in this country, in this day and age. But we must be patient with those around us who don't know the Lord. I heard something the other day that really summed this up, and this was uh, Don Stewart, who, if any of you have listened to the Pastor's uh, Perspective show on K-Wave Radio, um, Don often hosts that show, and he said this. He said, until the Lord tells you to shake the dust off your feet, you don't give up. Until the Lord tells you to shake the dust off your feet, you don't give up. We've got to forget the phrase, they would make a great Christian, as we've seen. God has taken people whose lives have been wrecked, even by the world standards, and he has turned them into people that we would admire and respect the most, who have changed this world. People like the Apostle Paul, a murderer to apostle, because of what Jesus has done. Anyone can make a good Christian. It is not about what any of us bring. It is about God's grace to save them, to save us, to change them to change us it's by God's grace alone that this is possible and therefore we must show grace and love toward all even those whom we don't feel comfortable showing it to you know those again that have wronged us or hurt us or those that we love you know we must pray like that example I shared of the girl at uni where one girl started just loving and caring for her but praying for her and getting others to pray too. You know, it's so easy when we look at our TV screens and we see some of the filth, some of the horrible things that go on, and we criticise. And we say, oh, I cannot stand that person. They are so vulgar. Yes, they might be. When was the last time you prayed for them? I'm challenged by that because I know I don't do it. What about people that are in your office or school or those that your friends on Facebook, how many times do we raise our eyebrows as we scroll past something and think, wow, it's an opportunity to pray for all these people. We're really friends. We need to be praying for people. God's grace is the solution to the biggest problem this world has ever had and ever will have. There is no restriction on who God's grace is available to. It's available to everyone. And as much as you and I need a saviour, so does everyone around us. And we cannot let our perception of someone get in the way of us speaking to them or showing love to them. And that could be hard at times because sometimes, I know this even at work or outside of work with non-Christian friends, there's times I think, I don't want to be part of this conversation. And there is a time, there's definitely a time to walk away, to choose your friends carefully to not have the wrong influence in your life. Yet, at the same time, we have got to be accessible to those around us. Imagine if you are the only Christian someone ever meets. You're the person that God can use, and I pray will use, to speak to them. We cannot 
hold against others what we would not hold against ourselves. We need God's grace. They need God's grace. It's a free gift. That's the best thing. No one can earn it. No one can bring anything to it. It's a free gift. Let's, um, let's bow our hearts before the Lord. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus to die in our place. Lord, truly when we examine ourselves, we realize that the only good in us is that which you have worked in us, that, Lord, we are so sinful that we desperately need you as our Savior. And, Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you did die in our place. Lord, help us to have such a passion to speak with those around us. Lord, those people that we know that don't know you. Lord, help us not to look at sin in their lives and walk away. Lord, help us not to look at anyone and think they would make a better Christian than the other because, Lord, it's all about what you can do and will do in people's lives. Lord, we thank you how you do save people, how you turn their lives in this world around. But, Lord, how, most importantly, you save them, you save us from an eternity in hell. Lord, help us to have a passion to see those that we know that don't know you come to know you, Lord that we would not be upset like the, the brother of the prodigal and, and wondering why they're getting any kind of special treatment. For Lord, we all need special treatment. We all need your grace. And Jesus, again, we just thank you and praise you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.